Welcome to another Military History Verbalized podcast and today we talk about Canada in World War II and we have a special guest, Jesse from Canada. Hello, Jesse. Hello, thank you for having me. Glad to have you here. Um, could you give a short introduction on your back, uh, professional background, please? Sure. I held a master's degree in modern history from the University of Vienna. And I've worked as a historical researcher in Canada for different museums, different government agencies. So I spent some time kind of searching through archives and things like that. And um, I have also worked in France as a First World War battlefield tour guide. And I currently work at a university here in Vienna. To start off, can you give a basic overview about Canada and the Second World War, so the most important aspects before we focus more on the naval, air and land warfare later on? Sure. Um, well, Canada's role, I think, in both world wars is not necessarily that well known outside the country. I mean, we're not a world superpower or anything like that. We don't appear in all the geopolitical calculations very significantly, but um, um, Canada did make a significant contribution, both in terms of the industrial war effort, but also uh, on in the air, on land and at sea. And um, the country was also quite affected by the war internally, and, and that kind of goes both ways. So how the country was able to wage the war was affected by the kind of country we are. So I'll try to weave in a few examples of that for your audience who I suppose are probably mostly not Canadians so we'll uh, we'll take it slow and one interesting aspect was that I read up you had about 1 million manpower provided to the war but you that, mentioned earlier that only about half of that was actually deployed outside of Canada that's true uh, the country's population in 1939 was about 11 million people and over the course of the war, about 1.1 million men and women, so that includes like the women's auxiliary services and so on, uh, wore the uniform. Now, uh, nearly half of those people served inside Canada. So they weren't in combat or in theaters uh, where combat was taking place. And part of the reason for that is, uh, is political, domestic politics. Right, Canada is um, is a homo is a heterogeneous uh, country, and that makes coordinated policy where people can die pretty tricky, right? Because not everybody accepts uh, the same reasons for participating in a war. In Canada's case, the um, trauma of the First World War, where military conscription was imposed, most French Canadians, which are about a quarter of the population, were not so enthusiastic about fighting for the British Empire. We'd been a colony of the empire and were still, let's say, in the orbit of Britain in 1939. Uh, most French Canadians and some immigrant groups, Germans, Italians, uh, Ukrainians, for example, were not so enthusiastic about serving overseas. And it was very difficult politically to um, impose forced military service. And that's pretty much the reason why there's a relatively low proportion 
of Canadians in uniform who ended up serving in combat theaters. And what was the job mostly doing at home? I mean, I know there were a lot of POW camps in Canada, I think also due to the distance to Europe. So basically, if somebody got out, well, he couldn't go back. Right. Generally speaking, that's true. Yeah. Um, well, there was a scare in Canada about the safety of Canada itself. Now, in retrospect, that seems not so realistic. Yeah. Right. Um, when war breaks out and, you know, France is defeated and Japan is racing ahead in the Pacific, there was a lot of hype uh, about what happens if Canada's under threat and so on. So these divisions of troops who were uh, conscripted, but the law said, uh, well, for the first three years of the war, the law said you can be conscripted, but you cannot be forced to serve in combat or serve overseas. So they were just stationed along the coast in British Columbia and on the Atlantic coast. They were guarding facilities, training. Um, they were listening to lots of motivational speeches about why they should volunteer to go uh, and be subject to combat and join combat units, although most of them didn't. And um, the veteran guard, so older guys who had served in World War One, they were still in uniform or they were, let's say, put back into uniform and they guarded, they were the ones guarding the prisoner of war camp. And there were about uh, 34,000 Axis prisoners of war who were interned in Canada, uh, mostly in the middle of nowhere, of course. We have a lot of that. So it's pretty useful if you, if you have somebody who might be useful to the other side and you catch him and you don't want him to get back, you basically send him to the middle of nowhere and that's, that's us. There's one awesome case, I, just a, a crazy anecdote. There was one guy, just because you mentioned that, that it's impossible to get back or it's hard to get back, one guy did. One um, German Air Force Luftwaffe officer was captured in 1940 by the British and then shipped to Canada. And uh, he, he's the only one on record that I know of who managed to escape, jumped out of a train while being transported to the camp, uh, made his way across the border to the U.S., which was still neutral at the time, made it down to Mexico and got back to Germany, rejoined the Luftwaffe, and then six months later was killed in a training accident. But, uh, oh. but yeah, yeah. A little ironic, all that effort to die in a training accident. But yeah, there you have it. Yeah, it makes, makes sense. When the United States is still neutral, then, then it can work. But after, after December 1941, I guess it would have been impossible. No chance. So, um, now, I actually came up with now an interesting question. Um, how in... I know Canada is very well known nowadays for resources and oil, but how was this back in the Second World War? Well, Canada's reputation as, um, let's say, America light uh, as a destination for people looking for a new chance at life or for you know open spaces or, or different opportunities was there. Um, certainly the British knew about the resources that the natural resources that Canada had to offer because, well, we were a colony providing them with that for, for a couple of hundred years. And uh, again, in the First World War, we, we played a, a similar role. Um, the Germans also knew, because of the experience 
uh, many Germans had of immigrating to Canada. In fact, as another small side note, one of the collecting areas at Auschwitz for people's goods was, was referred to as the Canada warehouse because it was so full of riches when they were piling them up there. So this idea about Canada as a place of, uh, of natural riches was certainly there in the minds of Europeans and the British obviously wanted to use it. And uh, Canada obliged. This is one thing Canada wanted to do. The government was very hesitant to send a lot of troops into combat because they were afraid to have the same experience as World War One, where 66,000 were killed. We had to impose, the government had to impose conscription. French Canadians rioted in the streets. English Canadian troops were brought in and shot at them. So that has to be avoided, right? How can you avoid that? You can try to convince the British that you can contribute in other ways by giving them resources. And we certainly did. Um, for example, about half of all the allied aluminum that was used, or aluminium for your British listeners, uh, was used for you know aircraft production. All this came from Canada, as well as 90% of the nickel. So in case you were wondering, fast facts about Canadian nickel production, there you go. So this also brings us now to the to the naval side because if you transport something back then or even today, it's usually from up with with shipping. Mm -hmm. So what what were the contributions from Canada in terms of the uh, of, of naval warfare, for, mainly for the Battle of the Atlantic? I, I'm not sure if in the Pacific you had anything. Yes, there was some contribution in the Pacific, a couple of ships, but uh, it was in no way comparable to the Atlantic War. Obviously, um, Canada had experience with the convoy system from the previous world war. So the main uh, role of the Canadian Navy, the Royal Canadian Navy, was to provide escort duty, escort ships for convoys, uh, which involved both reactive protection against the submarine attacks, but also sometimes uh, hunting. The Air Force was involved as well, of course. Mostly the Canadians used smaller ships, so the, the Canadian Navy didn't have, you know, battleships and things like that, or aircraft carriers. It's mostly frigates, corvettes, destroyers, uh, that sort of level of combat ship with uh, primarily the anti-U-boat function. In addition, sort of, let's say, uh, operationally, Canada was given, or the Canadian Navy uh, was given responsibility for coordinating the operations in the Northwest Atlantic for a couple of years. Um, and part of that side of it was the occupation of Iceland. So the British decided that to secure the, uh, the North Atlantic uh, communications routes, that Iceland had to be occupied, and it was in 1940 by British troops. But of course, the British needed to use the troops, and uh, Canada obliged by sending, uh, well, my grandfather's infantry division, actually, to occupy Iceland for a short period of time until the U.S. in turn relieved those Canadian troops. Um, and the other major Canadian responsibility in the North Atlantic was trying to close the so-called Mid-Atlantic Gap. So the Atlantic Gap was uh, a wide patch of ocean where you couldn't easily reach with air cover based either in Newfoundland or in the U.K. Uh, you, 
or in Greenland, you couldn't easily uh, cover that central spot in the ocean to, with aircraft to hunt for subs. So that was the most dangerous spot for some time for the convoys. And one of, uh, one of the Canadian, Royal Canadian Air Force's roles was to fly uh, from Iceland to try to cover that gap as much as possible. Eventually, there were enough long-range bombers around that the gap was more or less closed. The other thing I wanted to mention was later in the war, um, the Royal Canadian Navy was assigned the flank coverage duty on D-Day, um, basically to secure both ends of the channel against any potential submarine incursions, uh, which might have disrupted the transporting of troops and equipment and, and supplies and so on across the channel on, on D-Day and shortly, shortly afterwards. Um, and it's quite an achievement, I think. Uh, I'm not a nationalist by any means, but if you just think militarily and organizationally, the Canadian Navy started the war with seven ships and uh, finished the war as, depending on the source, the fourth or fifth largest navy uh, on the planet. That's definitely a quite impressive build-up. And also, I mean, it, this, I think this is very interesting from, from, the, from a more global uh, perspective that what the Allies did very well in, in terms of division of labor to a certain degree, you could say, that for instance, Canada was assigned mainly the anti-submarine warfare role, where they had veteran specialists. I mean, of course, if they were also assigned during D-Day, which was one of the largest navies ever in, in operation, that they provided the, the area there. And whereas, for instance, the, the axis usually, which I call them a dysfunctional family, or some call them a bunch of predators, usually were very bad at, at doing this division of labor where, where they said, okay, you are good at that and, and you can do this or, or something along those lines. This is very interesting to see why also the allies on a, on a bigger, on a grand strategic level were sometimes quite way more effective due to the coordination and putting the right people or the, the right forces for the, for the right mission. Yeah, I mean, I think a hey, coalition warfare is hard, but if you can manage it, it's an advantage over your opponent. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of air warfare, you already mentioned that they were um, covering the Mid-Atlantic Gap. But as far as I know, they also produced a lot of bombers for, the, for, for Great Britain. And, and also, I, I'm not sure, probably also provided some squadrons or some other stuff. I'm, I'm not well aware about contributions in the air warfare besides building bombers. Yeah, I mean, Canada had a, a, a relatively strong, given the size of the country, um, industrial base, especially thanks to U.S. companies opening up branch plants in Canada. Now, that was the case for land vehicles. But as far as the aircraft are concerned, uh, during the war, Canada built about 14,000 aircraft of different types. I don't have the breakdown of heavy bombers versus medium bombers versus fighter aircraft, but um, it I mean, 14,000 aircraft is quite a significant chunk. Some say, uh, you know, some, some texts I've read highlight the training program, the, the so-called Commonwealth Air Training Program, as Canada's most significant contribution to the air war. It's not sexy. It's not super exciting. There's not, like, blood and guts and glory happening uh, when you're training a bunch of guys on how to fly, but that's pretty useful to your war effort. 
And during the war, um, about 130,000 pilots were trained from the whole British Empire on Canadian soil. And at one point, they were turning out about uh, 1,400 a month trained pilots. And uh, that's that's a pretty key thing if, if you're an island power and the only combat arm that you can use to strike back at your enemy is the air arm, which was the case for for uh, the British for, for quite some time during the war. Um, but of course, there were also Canadian pilots and air crew who were involved in combat. The most prominent role was in bomber command as a part of the uh, as a part of the British Bomber Command, there was one of the groups, one of the Bomber Command groups consisted, I believe, of 14 Canadian squadrons of Lancaster bombers, including one French-Canadian squadron as well. Um, and they participated for years, obviously, in the, in the carpet bombing of uh, German cities and industrial areas. Very interesting point about training, because this is what a lot of people usually miss, but those people who watched my wider Luftwaffe failed in World War II, in the beginning of the war, the German had way more training time than the Allies, but this switched over the war and providing sufficient amount of training and everything is how you keep your, your Luftwaffe or your Air Force sustainable, because people always forget that you lose a lot of planes and also pilots in, in, regular, in regular operations, not just by the enemy. So you have to always bring new, basically new blood in to sustain the air warfare because the attrition is so high. And especially pilots are, and, and also other like navigators or air crews are very expensive troops, you could say, because you, you have to put in a lot of, you have to put in the fuel for the training flights, you have to train them for a long time it's it's a very high and technical job i mean navigation and everything it also involves mathematics so providing that much pilots due to the training is yeah a substantial amount for the war effort and uh, I, I didn't know that but it, if if many sources put out that's the most important stuff they contributed i i can certainly see why this is the case yeah i mean um you can have a lot of powerful armament, you can have a uh, technologically advanced aircraft, but if the guy in it doesn't, or woman in it doesn't know how to fly it, and if there's no fuel in it, uh, you got a problem. So the, the logistics, human and material behind it are just as important as the more visible stuff. Yeah, exactly. So now let's let's look at the at the final part, at the at the land warfare, because I think DD Canada also provided at, at least one division, right? Correct. There were five uh, five beaches stormed on D-Day. One of them, codenamed Juno Beach, was stormed by a Canadian infantry division. Many Canadians are very proud to mention that uh, that that uh, elements of that Canadian division. Uh, advanced farther on June 6th than any other Allied units. That rate of advance and success was not sustainable, though. But uh, I'll maybe I'll say a bit about that uh, in a moment because the D-Day is maybe the the most well-known battle in which Canadians were involved outside of of Canadian historical memory. But 
Canada's ground combat role, actually the first, uh, the first major engagement was Hong Kong in December 1941. Canada had sent a couple of battalions there, a couple of thousand soldiers there, who uh, were involved in the unsuccessful attempt to defend the island. This is a bit controversial, of course, not only because of the huge you know, British defeat, but um, there was discussion about the performance of those troops, how well or, or how not well they had been trained. I mean, the, the army was in as poor a state as the Navy before the start of the war with only um, four or 5,000 active regular troops. Um, there was a lot of reluctance, political reluctance, to to send troops into combat or to even create a large-scale uh, combat land force. Nonetheless, it became necessary. Um, and then you have conflicting forces, right? You have some in Canada who say, we have to be careful, we can't you know, contribute too much to the land war. And you have others who say, no, we must help Britain, we must do it now. And that's one of the reasons why Canadian troops were selected for the Dieppe raid on the coast of France in 1942, August 1942, and that was a disaster, right? So this was a trauma for, for Canada. The, the raid was a, pretty much a complete failure, even though some lessons were learned uh, that were applied on D-Day uh, a couple of years later. Um, the first large-scale combat was actually in Sicily. In 1943, the, there was... Uh, there was a desire to have Canadian troops contribute in some way, as I say, um, and so one division was sent down to participate in the Sicilian campaign, and they continued on the Italian campaign until they were eventually transferred back to northwestern Europe. Um, interestingly, Canadians often have a very positive evaluation of the fighting record of the troops, especially the infantry, in World War I. Uh, they're considered amongst most Canadian historians to have been you know, shock elite combat troops, especially the last two, specifically the last two years of the First World War. But the situation in World War II is a little more tricky. Um, the performance of Canadian troops in Normandy, and trying to close the, trying to capture the city of Caen, trying to close the Falaise Gap, um, and 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 cut off the Germans before they could regroup and retreat, um, is a is a bit of a patchy one in some ways. It was a real struggle, and the British struggled as well. It wasn't only the Canadians, and part of the reason for that was that there was not an overwhelming commitment to the to taking casualties and, and to building up the, the, the army in the same ways as had been done in, in World War One, So they, because no conscription had been imposed, they essentially were running short of volunteers. They, they could not, by the late summer of 1944, they could not replace combat attrition with fresh bodies. And they were having to press into service uh, less well-trained troops and switch troops from other support services to combat uh, roles, which is quite difficult if you're trained as a cook and then all of a sudden uh, you need to be fighting an SS division, a Waffen SS division, 
you're, you're probably not going to have a very easy baptism of fire. And this was a major issue facing the land forces as they advanced across northwestern Europe um, to the point where eventually a political risk was taken and conscription was imposed, but as little as possible. So in the end, only about 2,500 non-volunteers reached uh, frontline units. I remember even my grandfather telling me he was... Um, he was in a mechanized infantry unit, and he told me that some of these green, you know, fresh guys would show up, transferred from support services, and he and the other combat veterans um, had a very hard time trying to help them along uh, when they first arrived. Uh, I think maybe the most enduring combat for Canada on land in World War II was in Holland was really tough going uh, with the wet terrain, the canals, the polders, uh, which were opened up and flooded by the Germans as well. Uh, very easily defensible, cold, wet in the winter of 44-45. And that, um, that was a tough, a tough slog. Uh, but much of the country was liberated by Canadian troops and there's still kind of a, an emotional relationship uh, between the two two countries as a result of that. Now, this is a very interesting aspect you mentioned with, with the force conservation, basically due to the limits of manpower, because this this was also a problem for the British in, in the late war, because, and, and in another way, the Churchill basically said, okay, um, in the initial assault on Northwestern Europe, we will be there, but then the American troops have to take over, and in a more grand strategic context, since the Allies assumed that Germany would break down in 1944, they already had marked several divisions for shipping them back to the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So, so this is uh, something that is actually not mentioned very well. But um, Gian Greco, the author of Hell to Pay, noted to me in an email. It was very interesting and to read up on this that the whole the whole manpower issue, which is usually not discussed in popular history at, at all was affecting so many um, Western countries on one way or another and also the, the aspect of support units or, or non-combat troops being forced into combat because the Germans saw this of course uh, during Operation Barbarossa in 1941 and, and then in 1942 again that it's, it's, it's in a very similar experience in that way that this happens in, in many armies. It's quite interesting to see this. Yeah, and uh, one, of the, one of the aspects of that that I, I just uh, read about recently is that the Canadians, of course, we, we were, generally speaking, our combat troops at some level were under British command, right? Um, up to the army level, there was Canadian command, but above that and strategically, we were under British command. And um, so we adopted a lot of British-style systems and equipment and, and so forth. And one of the British systems that was adopted was the system of replacements. So how do you predict how many guys you need to train to go into this branch, this branch, this branch? And the British model had been developed as a result of their combat experience early in the war in North Africa. And in North Africa, conditions were very different and the types of casualties sustained were different than what the British and Canadians experienced 
in France, Belgium, and Holland. And that caused a problem because in North Africa, the German and Italian air forces were quite present and caused a lot of casualties amongst the support services behind the lines and engineers and so on. And that wasn't the case in 1944-45 in Northwestern Europe because the Western Allies had basically complete air uh, supremacy. So that mundane administrative system contributed to the basically to kind of not the right proportion of training men for frontline combat versus training men for support services. Well, that's very interesting because this is, I think, very different to the German perspective in this case. What, what I find so interesting about military history and why I got into it, and this applies to Canada in World War II, there are so many aspects to it. I think we, you know, some of the questions that people have right off the bat, okay, what was what was Canada doing in World War II? I mean, you know, as I say, most people outside of Canada, Britain, don't really know much about it. You think, well, how many troops did they have? Where did they fight? How many tanks? Uh, all this kind of stuff. But if you follow back from that, if you add the context to that, why were they sent where they were? What were they doing there? What are the decisions? What's the society thinking and doing and reasoning as a part of being involved in this conflict? That's to me what uh, one of the aspects that I find the most interesting about Canada's experience in World War II or one or, or actually any, any other participant. Um, I think after the war, Canada looked back on it as, as many other countries uh, among the Western allies. It's the good war, right? It's the one that's not, it's much more clear. There's a lot more moral clarity than uh, World War I. And casualties were lower. So it's in a way less traumatic uh, for the society. So we only lost only, of course, that's a difficult word to use, but there were 45,000 Canadians killed in World War II, and the majority of those were not in the army, whereas a much smaller population lost 66,000 in World War I. And I think today when Canadians think about World War II, it's almost in a more simplistic way than how we think about World War I, even though the divisions, the stresses, the trauma to our country are no less, uh, no less complicated. Well, I would say this is a wonderful ending. So thank you very much, Jesse. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope to do it again sometime. Definitely. So everyone else, thank you for listening. And hear you next time. Bye.